0: Hello, Waterfowlers. This is the Old Timer coming to you once again with episode 22. Before we get started with that, let me just say the music part of the Memphis in in May has ended for three days. Started Friday and ended last night because I'm dictating this on uh, Monday. So anyway, it looked to be a success with large crowds. We could sit out on our balcony on the 12th floor and listen to the south stage. There's three stages that they have music spread out over this, probably about a 200-acre park, sits right smack dab on the river. But, you know, this coming uh, Sunday is Mother's Day, which obviously is a special day that we're going to celebrate. And I was blessed to have parents who introduced me to hunting at a young age. While not an active participant in the hunt, Mom was always very supportive of us, spending time in the outdoors, and more than willing to turn out harvest, our harvest, into a mill. In addition, she and Dad gave me love, appropriate guidance, and mentoring. As she would always say, there are no bad days in a duck blind, so enjoy what Mother Nature gives you and enjoy her rewards. Before you know it, you will be grown and you will have stores of problems, of misfortunes, Perhaps even war. But you, my son, at your young age, have resolute faith in living for today, and that will stay with you. When I see the excitement and joy on your face when you come home from hunting, I know no matter what happens tomorrow or the next day, you will remember the simple times when you didn't have a care in the world, and the pride in having a son like you is that it is fun to be the mother of such a boy as you. I always feel sad on Mother's Day, for Mom passed away in 1998 from thyroid cancer, and I miss her dearly, so Mom, I wish you a happy Mother's Day up there in heaven with dead. I know you and Dad are happy, and you are suffering no more. No matter how much I try, words can't express my love and gratitude for all you did for me and put up with, especially during hunting season. You are dearly missed, and you were dearly loved. Now, to all you out there listening, this is Mother's Day. This is a special day. You give your mama a special attention. To all the other mothers, happy Mother's Day to you all. So kick back and relax, mothers, and enjoy your day. Well, let's go on with episode 22. And I I thought since I echoed this sentiment on being Mother's Day this coming Sunday, I thought we would do the fair Nimrods and Dianas of the marshes. Now, what? who are the fair Nimrods and the Dianas? Well, I'll try to explain that to you. So here we go. Most are aware of Nimrod, the mighty huntress of the Bible, and the methodical Diana, the Roman goddess of the hunt. But it took centuries after the discovery of the New World for the fair Nimrod or Diana to get any recognition. Throughout history, prominent women have stood alongside male hunters, equipped with bows or firearms. Elizabeth I of England was a keen hunter in the 1500s, as were the ladies of Louis XIV's court, Queen Anne of Denmark in the 1600s, and George Washington's wife Martha in the 1700s in the New World. There was a time long ago when it was thought undignified for ladies to hunt. It was regarded as a queer happening, something out of the ordinary, an astonishment for a fair Nimrod to leave her home to hunt in the duck marshes, to shoot from a blind, or go in for shooting sports in any manner with her corset, which was a long skirt that would sweep up dirt and debris with layers of petticoats underneath. Seen with a gun a fill, or extreme, a lady's reputation would have been ruined. After all, hunting, in the popular mind, was the most male-identified cultural pursuit, and the fair Dianas were considered threatening to the manliness of the sport. But fortunately, time changed, for there were ladies who defied what society thought about how women were to behave and what they could accomplish. So... After the 1860s, with the invention of bloomers, women took to the outdoor life eagerly. The Forest and Stream, and I've mentioned Forest and Stream many times in a lot of my podcasts, and they were one of the first sporting journals that had much and much stuff on duck hunting back in the old days. They got started in 1873. So the Forest and Stream said in 1894, there is no good reasons why there should not be as many sportswomen as there are sportsmen. Years later, Phil and Stream stated in 1896, the day is not far off when the blouse and skirts will be frequent features of our glorious landscape and its exhilarating wildlife. In the very early days, they wore their corsets and later doned their bloomers and shot from boats or blinds. As time changed, they wore dresses. Eventually, however, just like the men, they doned, their trousers and rubber hill boots, and waded through the gumbo, swamps and marshes, but probably not very often. But this was after the 1920s because customs did not allow the wearing of trousers for women much before this time. The Newark, Ohio Daily Advocate newspaper for February the 7th, 1884, reported, A solitary sportsman roamed over the Alvarado marshes in California last Sunday in pursuit of ducks, which were few and far between. He saw two girls seated on the margin, dressed in a peculiar and striking costume. They wore tunics extending to the knees, long rubber boots, hunting coats, and caps, and were provided with an excellent brace of breech-loading shotguns. Beside them were teal, widgeons, and rails, ample testimony to their skill and their use of their weapons the hunter raised his hat and presuming on fraternity of the sports inquired if the ladies were having any good luck they pointed triumphantly to their pile of birds and then glanced sympathetically at their interrogators flaccid game bag both were unusually pretty girls their cheeks brown from exposure showing there was not their first excursion They confessed that the oddity of their costume made them shun the male hunter, though the sportsman confessed he had never believed that rubber boots could look so cunning. Now, was he coming on to these young girls or not? I don't know. Just then, a bunch of teal came streaming downwind with lightning speed, and both girls squatted on the marshes in a moment. Along swept the teal birds, bang, went both guns, and three birds fell to the ground to the astonishment of the old man sitting there. They picked him up and offered him a brace of the birds as he had the courtesy to allow them to do the shooting. They explained how they came to be hunters. One was extremely delicate, and after graduating from a well-known seminary in Alameda County, now this is California, was recommended outdoors exercise by her doctor as the only escape from consumption. And I believe the consumption back in those days was tuberculosis. Tired of continuous, objectionless strolling and doing nothing, the girl, under tutoring of her uncle, learned to shoot. She converted a companion to the sport, and both were then passionately attached to hunting. The same two were now women when this was later reported by another newspaper. The sportsmen who tramped the Alameda Marshes of California in quest of rails and ducks were certainly astonished at seeing two young women, both of whom were dressed in bloomers, plodding along a Tule slough on opening day of the waterfowl season in October 1895. They had traveled by bicycles and taken up the shotgun so as to be shooting on opening day. A sportsman who had taken a particular interest in the fair Dianas, watched their performances with a shotgun and were highly surprised to see the two stopping the flight of several rails, more so the taller one of the two sportswomen. In talking to them, they told him they enjoyed the sports immensely and were trying to induce some of the young ladies of Alameda and Oakland who were fond of shooting to take up duck and rail shooting. They said that they were going to organize a ladies' duck club in the future. However, one who donned trousers early on and one of the most prolific fair nimrods, goose herder, and market hunter ever was Miss Molly. Her real name was Mary Elizabeth Morgan of Maxwell, Calusa County, California. She was 12 years old in 1888 when she became a goose herder. Now, a goose herder was someone a farmer hired to drive off geese who was consuming his crop during the season. Her father had for many years hired four herders, as goose herders, to scare off the geese from his crops. He paid them $30 a month for their services and supplied them with old army muzzle loading muskets and ammunition. All he required of them was to scare the geese from his crops as they rarely ever killed one. When reaching age 12, her father paid her $20 per month to shoot with a shotgun and herd geese, and allowed her to market her geese. Over several years, she found it difficult to sneak upon the geese to get a good shot with a shotgun, so she switched to a Winchester rifle when Calusa County offered a bounty of two cents for each goose head. With the season beginning in November and lasting for three and one-half months, she shot every day. In 1892 at age 16, that was her biggest year, recording a kill of 9,855 geese and making just less than $200 bounty money from the county. Her biggest kill with a rifle without reloading was 66 geese. I crept up through a swell or waterway, onto acres of geese and emptied my entire 16 shots into the flock before they got out of range. You know, sometimes one shot went through half a dozen of them. That is the largest work I ever did without reloading. When there is a small flock, I do some fancy shooting by shooting their heads off. I can do that 49 out of 50 times at the range of 100 yards. I have seen over 5,000 acres covered with them, an estimated 1,000 birds to the acre. There would be 5 million geese on that piece of property, and I am putting it low because I don't want to be accused of exaggeration. One newspaper said she is death on geese. After the heads were shot off for bounty payments, she took the rest of the geese to sell at the game markets in San Francisco. Probably the most famous market hunting, Diana, was legendary Annie Oakley, who at nine years old, perhaps earlier, was shooting and hunting to support her family. In her teens, she put her shooting talents to work, selling waterfowl, deer, and other game that she shot to local stores. The San Francisco Call in 1900 remarked under the headlines, Sportswomen divide honors with sportsmen on the ponds of the Phil and Tule Shooting Club near Cordelia. And this is what they recorded. Not until this season had the selfish sportsmen taken his wife, sister, or his daughter to a shooting club and initiated them into the rites and mysteries of a day on the marshes. The Phil and Thule Club, whose preserves were situated near Cordelia and were among the best of the Sussoon Marsh, established the customs of Lady's Day when the season was well underway. So popular did this become with the Lady Shooters that the male members feared they had reared a mountain where a molehill was intended. Some of the ladies became very adept in bringing down the feathered game, but the majority contented themselves with an occasional bird or two. It was a poor day shoot at the club when they returned without a good string of birds. Once again, going back to the forest and stream, and they reported in 1911, the modern Diana with her zest, her joy de vivre, which is French, and that means keen enjoyment of life. So their keen enjoyment of life and their independence has apparently come to stay. Carl Klinst, manager of the hunting goods section of the San Diego Cycle and Arms Company, was known as a most enthusiastic duck hunter, and under his leadership, each season there was held at one of the lakes in the vicinity, a duck drive. In 1920, in the Sweetwater Lake Drive, a 58 hunters participated and a total of 650 ducks were bagged. He said, Women, as well as men, have become interested in the sports, and we have several women who make it a point to take in every drive. In fact, so important has become our feminine trade that we now have a special section for them, well-stocked with sweaters, caps, and boots, as well as the lighter weight rods and guns, which they must use. In 1920, we had with us a real countess, the famous Huntress Countess Bobillon, the French Diana, who was stopping in San Diego and attended our annual duck drive. Naturally, she attracted a lot of attention, and believe me, she certainly could shoot, as you, you will note from the string of birds she has to her credit. In Memphis society circles, several women were expert with the shotgun, and they can compete ably with the men in bringing home waterfowl. The Five Lakes Outing Club near Hughes, Arkansas, and the Menachee Outing Club and Wapanaka Outing Club near Turrell, Arkansas, attracted numerous Memphis Dianas. As most everyone knows, Mephian Irma Buckingham accompanied her husband, Nash, on many duck hunting trips to Wapanaka. Emma Hickson and her husband, Frank, moved from Memphis to the Wapanaka Outing Club in 1913. Frank was a very good dancing instructor, and he left his job to become caretaker of the club. After three years, he gave up his job to devote his entire time to farming. Emma, who did not know a duck from a coot when she first moved to the club, was asked by the members to take her husband's place, which she readily did. For some 20 years, she managed the hunting club while perfecting her shooting and duck hunting skills. For 10 consecutive years, from 1921 to 1930s, she was champion trap shooter of Arkansas while also being an avid waterfowler and one of the better shooters of the club. Probably none was more avid about waterfowling than the hip-boot-trouser-wearing Mrs. Forrest Jones of Laconia Circle, Arkansas, one of the best-known women duck hunters in the country. She began hunting when she was 10 years old and by 1935 had killed so many ducks she had lost count. Mrs. Jones remarked about those early days, When I first began hunting, there was no limit except to ammunition and human endurance. Once my brother and myself shot 65 in one hour. She often accompanied her husband and Dr. George McCleary of Excelsior Springs, Missouri, and Dick Dickhoff, of Stuttgart on hunting trips to Freudenberg's Reservoir near Stuttgart. Now, Freudenberg's Reservoir near Stuttgart was a famous reservoir. Another hunting companion of hers, and that's Mrs. Jones, was Mrs. Nell, assistant manager of the Riceland Hotel at Stuttgart. And the Hotels were where all the famous duck hunters came and stayed, but not only famous ones, but all of them that came to ducking in that her- area from out of town. It was said that Miss Nell knew more duck hunters than the ducks knew and more about ducks than ducks do. Miss Nell and Miss Forrest Jones both died in the wool fair Nimrod, never let a little inclement weather prevent them from duck hunting. On september twenty eighth, nineteen twenty eight, the Santa Ana, California Register reported Duck hunters will be at it soon in legions and the hardy hunters will have to make room for the Fair Nimrods who, in this day of viral feminism, can handle a gun as well as they can manipulate a golf club or a tennis racket. The Daily Globe, Ironwood, Michigan, reported November the 5th, 1934. Here is a truly thrilling sporting experience, for it is Edith Stroyer of South Weatherfield, Connecticut, the only woman game ward in the United States who has 300 acres hunting ground especially set aside for fair nimrods as their special province. She said, reporting the newspaper, hunting is a thrill most women still can look forward to. Here, for instance, is a preserve where they can hunt far from the critical masculine eye, where about 50 women turn out for the six weeks quail, duck, woodcock, pheasant, and partridge season. Those who come are overjoyed that they can hunt in privacy. They don't resent men's presence but knowing the hunting district is theirs alone is comforting to them. Most of the women are already experienced hunters but occasionally one turns up who must be taught how to handle a gun and look for game. Once when making an arrest on their property for trespassing the man blurted, gosh what's the world coming to anyhow? Then we come to a modern Diana, the legendary Pat Peacock of Stuttgart the stepdaughter of the legendary duck call maker Chick Majors and her mother, Sophie, who was some kind of duck caller and hunter. And far as duck calling, so was Chick Major. Pat is known as the only person to hold all duck calling titles offered at the World Duck Calling Contest in Stuttgart. Did you hear what I just said? She won the Junior World's Duck Calling Championship at age 12. The Women's World's Championship five times, the World's Duck Calling Championship twice, and the Champion of Champions World Duck Calling title in nineteen sixty, competing against former world champions, all men. In each contest she used a disclee mallard caller. That's her what her stepfather's calls were called. Let me just add here, Pat won the World's Championship twice. And she only won it twice because she was not given the opportunity to compete for the third time. Now, but before this time, when she won the World's Championship, you can compete three times. And there were several men who had won it three times. But the men, when she won it twice, the men in control of the championship, wasn't too happy, as were a lot of the male duck callers. So they changed the rules where you could only win twice. However, years later, it, it was changed back to three times. So continuing on with Pat, she was the first woman appointed to the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission in 1994 and was inducted into the Arkansas Game and Fish Foundation's Arkansas Outdoors Hall of Fame as well as the Legends of the Outdoors National Hall of Fame. She also recognized as Conservation of the Year by the Arkansas Wildlife Federation. If that's not enough, she became curator of the Museum of the Arkansas Grand Prairie for many years and elected to the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, the first woman to ever serve since its inception in 1945. But most of all, she was an avid waterfowling, beginning at a young age, and she was a good friend of mine. Whether up on the duck calling stage at the Work Duck Calling Championship or in the duck blind as a teenager or later, she never felt intimidated by her male competitors. What a legend she left behind she had no equal she was some kind of diana or fair nimrod so all you waterfowlers out there listening to this podcast don't forget mother's day they are special special people in one's life and fortunately for me i had a wonderful mama and i had a wonderful father they were so great to me and i look forward to meeting them someday Not sure what I'll do for episode 23, but I can tell you it'll be a unique experience in the old-time duck hunting. So tune in every Tuesday. This will come out this following Tuesday. This is being dictated on Monday. So I look forward to you listening to me. I'm getting quite a group of listeners, and hopefully we can attract a lot more women to our sports. And so all you fathers out there who have young daughters, take them duck hunting or hunting with you. If you get a chance, go to my website, waterfiling.net. There at the top, you'll see a blog. Go to it, and you'll see a bunch of my old-time stories, many which I have not done a podcast on yet, but in the future, they'll all probably come up. I have so many stories to tell. I don't know really what I'll do next when when I finish an episode. I probably should plan a little bit better, but every so often, I throw in a contemporary one, and I may very well do that next time. If I do, it'll be a contemporary on triple crown and double digits, and I'm not going to give you any hints on what that is, so you'll have to tune in to the podcast. And as usual, I try to end with a reflection which will provoke some emotion from you and bring out old memories. So here we go. To arrive early in the morning before daylight to your blind in the marsh is an experience never to be forgotten, listening to the sounds of different waterfowl and other creatures. You realize you are in the midst of Mother Nature while hearing a hen mallard give her contented soothing call and widgeons squeal enthusiastically while squadrons of till pitch each and every way in formation, rippling the dark skies of heaven in one long nosedive. You pause to catch your breath at the sounds and gaze heavenly to see old man moon and a galaxy of diamond-studded stars the hour of listening ends with the onset of sunrise over the horizon, painting the sky with colors that artists would be jealous of. You realize there's nothing like seeing dawn from a duck blind as your eyes see and your ears hear, whistling wings, rendering the atmosphere in halves. The aerial show is visually mesmerizing and only interrupted by the report of shotguns from the blind. Some are hit. But more are missed. We watch as the winged wonders escape on fast, fluttering wings for safer quarters. Each flock a burr as they gain height and distance. Then comes the alibis of a thousand excuses for the shots we miss. I pause and ask myself, how can we care so much about something we kill? We can only rationalize that dilemma by giving back more than we take. I feel the anguish and anger and pain from all the marshes, swamps, and wetlands that have been drained and which continue to be drained. We can only do our part by respecting our natural resources, by leaving the land better than we found it, and being good conservationists. Someone said, the wild things of this earth are not ours to do with as we please. They have been given to us in trust, and we must account for them To the generations which come after us, I end and say God bless.